If you've ever thought, I'd like to make a lasting impact on the world, then get ready to grab a pen and some paper or your notes app, because today we're going to learn about how a text from the 5th century has stayed relevant in today's society. Welcome to Hooked on Science, a podcast where we learn about cool research that you should know about. I'm your host, Julia Cubans, and today I'm joined by Dr. Jason Smith, who recently graduated with his Doctor of Theology from the Committee on the Study of Religion from Harvard University. Jason, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I typically start by asking my guests if they consider themselves to be scientists, and we can circle back to that. But I think a better place to start might be by asking, what is theology? That's a great question. So basically, one of the things I often explain to people is that I'm in what's really a religious studies department, and the modern academic study of religion looks maybe different from how people might think of it, which is in the past when people, the, the study of religion were primarily involved around theological inquiry into the nature of God and the relationship between God and humans, as well as the study of scripture, biblical studies, things like that. The modern academic study of religion actually is a very capacious field. I just want to jump in for a second. If you don't know what capacious means, I didn't and I had to Google it. It just describes something that has ample space or room. Now let's get back to Jason. If you're studying it at a major research university like Harvard or the University of Chicago, what you're going to have is many different kinds of people in the department using many different kinds of methods in many different kinds of subfields. And so the scholars of religion today can consist of people who have no religious background or no religious faith themselves, but study it from, say, a historical perspective or an anthropological perspective. But we also have people working within the field of religion who are studying the tradition of which they are a part as practitioners themselves. And these are the people that will often fall into the study of theology today, which often is organized as one among many subfields within the larger study of religion. Okay, that's really interesting. I know that when I was in high school, we read, I think, just the New Testament as a piece of literature, and that seemed really, really foreign at the time, but it sounds like, at least within this religious studies umbrella, that's not quite so abnormal. But how did you become interested in, in theology and religious studies as a discipline? I came about it in a sort of roundabout way. If you told my younger self, you know, in high school, that I would go on to study religion academically and professionally, I would have been quite surprised. Though I was baptized Lutheran, did not grow up in a particularly religious household. I eventually went on to a Lutheran college. I went to St. Olaf College in Minnesota. And during my first year there, I took uh, these courses in the, our schools. It's called the Great Books Program. So you study the greatest works of literature, starting with you know, the Odyssey, the, the Book of Genesis in the Hebrew Bible, and you work your way all the way through up until the 20th century. And you read some of the you know, great works of literature and philosophy that have been produced as recently as 50 years ago. And I took that program and I found over time that I was particularly drawn to the philosophical and the theological texts that we were reading. And so by the end of my first year at St. Olaf, I began to realize that I was really drawn to the study of these sort of classic works of philosophy and religion. And I thought, you know, maybe I want to do a philosophy and religion major. 
which I eventually did. And so that's what interested me in it and got me excited about it and eventually started me on the path to doing my master's in religion. So I did a, a master of theological studies or an MTS degree for short at Harvard Divinity School before eventually starting the doctoral program, uh, which is what I just graduated from this spring. Other than studying texts, what does studying religion look like? There are so many different ways in which you can study a religious tradition. So for example, religious studies itself doesn't necessarily have its own method that, you know, is known as the religious studies method in the same way that, you know, historians have developed a certain archival method, a way of looking at old sources and writing a narrative of history, or the way an anthropologist is going to do ethnographic research out in the field somewhere and then come back and write up about their experiences. Instead, religion actually borrows from all of these fields. So it borrows from literary studies, it borrows from philosophy, from history, from anthropology, sociology, and so on. And so it's actually a really sort of capacious and broad field in the sense that there are so many different ways in which you can study religion. How do you narrow down from, it sounds like such a broad and just varied, and you can go in a lot of different directions with what you study in this religious context, how do you narrow that down to a time period or a region or a medium, I guess, that's of interest to you? Absolutely. I think this is one of the sort of most interesting things and often one of the most difficult things for a grad student in the study of religion to do is to focus on a particular topic when the range of potential areas of, of study is so broad. You know, it's different for every person. Some people come in and they sort of have an idea of what they want to do. For me, it was a little bit different. I knew that I was interested in the study of South Asia just by I had gotten started taking courses in it as an undergrad and then continued taking courses in grad school, studying things like uh, I took an co introductory course on the Hindu epics. So the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, these great works of Sanskrit narrative literature. And that really was what clinched it for me. I knew at that moment I was interested both in the study of South Asia and religion in South Asia, but in particular, the literary products that religious communities have developed to articulate certain religious ideas, express religious ideals to different audiences over time. And so for me, that was sort of a helpful narrowing point. I knew that I wanted to do something to do with religion and something to do with specifically religious literature in the South Asian context. So it's something for me that develops gradually over time. Sure. When you're narrowing down this information, what did you end up working with in this literature context? So my dissertation is basically a study of a single text. Sometimes you'll find dissertations like this, but often dissertations will cover a whole range or a whole genre of texts. But for the purpose of my project, I focused on just one called the Tirukuru. So that's T-I-R-U-K-K-U-R-A-L, Tirukuru. The Tirukuru is basically a poem. It's composed in the Tamil language, probably sometime around the 5th century of the Common Era. And it basically consists of 1,330 two-line poetic verses, which are then arranged into 133 chapters of 10 verses each. It would be probably most comparable to the Book of Proverbs in a Christian context or a Jewish context. So it's basically these short little aphoristic sayings. Each one contains a complete thought on its own, but then they combine to form these larger thematic chapters, and then they eventually build up into these larger three sections that constitute themes on virtue or ethics, one on wealth or politics, and then a third section 
on pleasure or love. Interesting. You you talked about this a little bit before that in your field, it's not as common for people to dedicate their entire dissertation to one text like you have. But how did you determine that this poem was worth dedicating years to studying and writing an entire dissertation about? I did a year of fieldwork in India. I was living in, in a town called Pondicherry, which has these research institutes set up, a place where there are scholar, active scholars with whom you can study, read, and translate with. And so during that time, I didn't quite know what my dissertation was going to be. I knew it was going to be on the Tirukurul in some capacity. Another interesting thing about the Tirukurul's history is that it's one of the most commented upon texts in the Tamil literary tradition. So one of the things that you know, made a text um, really popular and famous is that people would write commentaries on the text to explain it to new generations of readers and audiences. Because of course, as we know, similar to, you know, how it happens in English, it's difficult to read Shakespeare without some sort of teacher guiding you through it, without some sort of glossary of the terms. So similarly, in the Tamil context, 10 commentaries were composed on the Tirukkural roughly between the 10th and the 15th centuries, but only five of them are still, you know, still exist today. And so I, for a while I thought, you know, maybe my project would be about these five extant medieval commentaries and thinking about how they're interpreting it. But at the end of the day, what I realized is that no one had actually written a, a, singular, a single book-length project on just the text itself. And the text itself is so complex that I thought, you know, actually it's deserving of its own dissertation project, particularly thinking about how the three sections work together. I know before you said the poem was broken up into sections of virtue, wealth, and pleasure. Can you give me a short explanation of each of those sections? That very first section on virtue or ethics contains a lot of verses on what you might expect a proverbial style text to, to discuss. So it has little, you know, pieces of advice. You know, you should be a good person. You should be someone who doesn't tell a lie. You should be someone who you know, welcomes guests into their home. And then the middle section does something similar but very different in the sense that this is the part that's about wealth or politics. And it's geared primarily towards, of course, the historical context in which the Tirukkural was written, which is to say a kingly state. And so it has all of this advice about sort of, you know, if you're a king, here's how to be a good king. If you're a minister, here's how to be a good minister to the king. These are the kinds of things you should know. But then in the third section, which is the section on, you know, love, we get this really sort of different style or tone to the text. And it basically traces the progression of one uh, couple, a man and a woman, or they're glossed as the hero and the heroine throughout the text. And it's the progression of their love affair from the time they first meet until the time they, the poem ends with this very sort of simple view of them living their married life together. It seems like there's a lot of variation in the ideas presented in this poem, but some are probably still relevant today. Is this text still important, even though it was written in the 5th century? It still continues to be really popular in Tamil Nadu today. So it's not uncommon for children to memorize verses from the text in school. You'll also often find verses from the text in everyday settings. So for example, if you board a government bus in Tamil Nadu, which is the state in the southeasternmost part of the Indian subcontinent, you'll often see a verse from this text written on the very front of the bus where the driver sits. We also find often statues of the author. You'll find statues in Chennai, in Kanyakumari, which is a pilgrimage town on the southernmost tip 
of India. There's a giant statue on an island off of the coast that you can actually take a ferry from the shore to go visit and sort of take pictures with. And so it's a tremendously popular text in South India today. The status is probably comparable to something like Shakespeare's Hamlet, both the author and the text, you know, something that's really a household name. Everyone would know the author. Everyone knows the text. They've studied it by the time they've graduated from secondary school. Yeah, very, very interesting. Did you find in your time in India, are any of these sections more prevalent in today's society than others? Definitely. I think probably the majority of the verses you would see out and about, you know, walking through Tamil Nadu today would be from that first section on virtue or ethics. This seems to be probably the most popularly studied and read section today. Probably the least read and least studied section is that third section on love. And I think the reasons why that is, if children are studying this text in school, you know, I think it's a, probably a common thing. We would see it in the U.S. too. You know, oh, this is probably some of this love poetry about sort of, you know, the rapturous union of this man and woman in love is not appropriate for school-aged children. So I think there's a, there's a part of that that's there, which is understandable. I also think that there's probably a lot of 18th, 19th century legacy that has also led to this. So the Tirukkural was really one of the first Tamil texts that was taken up by European missionaries to India. And one of the things, interesting things we see is that European missionaries were obsessed with these first two parts of the text because it seems to express, you know, this kind of universal moral wisdom. If you're a missionary, oh, you know, this text talking about, you know, not lying, these sorts of general ethical principles is a great sort of bridge to try and accrue Christian converts and to make a connection between sort of Hindu culture in which they were working and sort of the Christian ideals that they wanted to convey to the people of South India. Um, and also one of the very sort of the Christian missionaries also produced some of the earliest translations of the text, but often it was only of the first section or only the first and second section. And they left out the third section altogether in their case, not because it's inappropriate, but because it was sort of offensive to their Victorian ideals of, you know, propriety, what's appropriate to, you know, to translate and to convey in literature. Right. So it sounds like, even though this is considered a religious text, it sounds like it's pan-religious type text, like it's accessible to anyone. That's absolutely right. And in fact, one of the reasons that it is such a pan-religious text is the fact that we actually don't know what the religious identity of the author was. And so we can't really say for sure, oh, it's a Hindu text or it's a Buddhist text or it's a Jain text. That hasn't stopped, of course, many people from speculating that the author was a member of one religious community or another. But the fact of the matter is, if you just do a close reading of the text on its own, many of the verses, many of the epithets that it uses to, de to describe God or the, a divine figure can be applied to divinities from multiple religious traditions in the South Asian context. And so this is really what I think has made the text take such a hold over time is that it has this sort of uses this pan religious imagery throughout its verses that can appeal to many different kinds of religious readers and audiences over time. And so today, you know, people from all different religious stripes are, are reading this text and interested in it. Before we get a little more into what you ended up doing in your research specifically, let's take a quick break. Hi, it's Julia. Thanks for tuning into today's episode of Hooked on Science. If you've been here before, welcome back. 
If you're a first-time listener for Jason's episode, consider subscribing to Hooked on Science on your favorite podcast app or following the podcast on Instagram or Facebook. As I like to mention every episode, Hooked on Science is one of my PhD projects. I want to see how effective podcasting is at conveying research and scientific information to anyone who wants to listen. I just had a meeting today about how to proceed with the data collection part, and I'm really excited. Maybe I'll even have an episode on the podcast about the podcast. That would be very meta, and you can learn about yourselves, I guess. That probably won't happen for another year or so because science is a slow process, but I'll keep you posted. Do you do cool research? Or do you know someone that's doing cool research? You can participate in Hooked on Science as a guest co-host by emailing me at hookedonsciencepod at gmail.com or by filling out the self-nomination form on the Facebook page. Any and all research is welcome. If you're enjoying today's episode, I said it before and I'll say it again. Please follow Hooked on Science on social media for any and all future updates. I know you have your phone on you right now, so take it out, open up Facebook or Instagram, and search for Hooked on Science Pod, all one word. Episodes are released every two weeks on Wednesday, and the next one will be up on June 3rd. See you then. Now that we've gotten a little bit of background on the text you've been working with, tell me, what is the guiding question or questions behind your research. So one of the things I wanted to do in the project of my dissertation really is to think about, you know, how are these three sections working together? What is the sort of unified vision underlying the text? And then two, how do we actually read this text? What are sort of some interpretive strategies that can guide us into actually thinking about the different ways to read a complicated text like this one? Sure. So speaking of translations of this text, when you were looking at this text, and I keep saying this text because I don't feel like I can pronounce it properly, um, as you began looking at it, were you reading it in English or in Tamil? What I tried to do for each verse is read it in Tamil as best I could and get a sense of what the verse was doing. So I always started with each verse and just said, let me look at it see if I can make sense of it, see if there are any, you know, vocabulary words that I know off the top of my head. It's not an often an easy thing to do. Certainly not for me as a non-native Tamil speaker, but even for a native Tamil speaker, sometimes I think it's difficult to break up these verses and know exactly what's being communicated. So what I would go to next, sort of the second level, was looking at these medieval commentaries. And I used two in particular, one composed in the 10th century, so probably one of the first or earliest commentaries. And then I used uh, Parimela Lahar's commentary from the, probably the late 13th century. And then I sort of translate these commentaries and use my translation of the commentaries to help me understand what the verse is trying to say. And then the, the third step I would use, and, and I often did this to make sure I was on the right path, is to actually consult other English translations of the Tirukurul. And so uh, if I really was stuck on, you know, I had tra- looked at the verse, looked at the commentaries, I still didn't quite know what the verse meant. Then I would say, okay, let me look, how have other people translated this? And I would kind of compare, you know, maybe three or four different tra- English translations of the verse. And now I can sort of formulate my own translation or what I think my, the own, my own best translation of what the verse would be. And so I benefit from the fact that the Tirukurul is a much studied and much translated text, right? So I'm not the first person to be you know, certainly not reading it, but definitely not translating it. One of the tricky things, however, is that I am one of the first people to be translating these commentaries. So 
you're not a native Tamil speaker. Is that what you, something that you learned when you were in India? Yeah, this is a great question. You know, I mentioned before, religious studies doesn't have its own method. It kind of borrows from, you know, a bunch of different methods from other fields. One of the things I think that will surprise people who aren't familiar with religious studies is that it involves a ton of language study. So this is one of the ways in which, you know, people make sure they're training good scholars of religion is that they're people who can read and access religious texts and sources in the primary language, right? And so for me, when I was a master's student at Harvard, I began by studying Sanskrit, actually. So this is often sort of the way into the field of South Asian religions. You'll start with the study of Sanskrit. And then as you go on, once you've mastered that, maybe taken a year or two of Sanskrit, then you'll move on to another language. So I began studying Sanskrit when I was a master's student. And then when I began the doctoral program, I decided that I wanted to have, make Tamil sort of my second language. And I didn't quite know how it was going to fit, because like I said, I came to sort of my dissertation topic a little later than most other people do. And I, as soon as I started taking Tamil and studying it, I realized that I loved it. And I really sort of wanted to make it the subject of my dissertation research. And so I began by taking just, there's three, three years basically of Tamil offered at Harvard, beginning, intermediate, advanced. And in those classes, we focus on reading it, translating it, which is what I've been doing for my dissertation project. We also learned to write in Tamil. And so you learn all these skills in, in the courses that I took at Harvard. But of course, there's no real substitute for going to India and being on the ground because you're forced to communicate in Tamil all day long as you're talking to people, you know, going to a restaurant, figuring out directions to the bus stop. Being in India for a year really improved my Tamil on all levels. Certainly speaking and listening, I got much better over the course of that year. By the end, I could really, you know, chat with people pretty well in Tamil, even though it's, you know, I'm never going to be perfect. I'm never going to be a native speaker. But in particular, I got much, much better at reading Tamil. Very interesting. So Jason, you have just submitted your dissertation. And as we talked about before recording, you're in a sort of nebulous time between having submitted and graduating. But what are the kind of careers you can have with your degree and with this path that you've taken? Absolutely. So for me, my interest is really in teaching. I'm hoping to go into academia at some point. And so my plan for next year is to do a postdoc at Harvard. And I will probably, you know, continue, use that time to continue my research. In religious studies, it's very common to turn your dissertation into a book. And so I'll start to use that time to think about, oh, how do I want to revise and edit my dissertation from, you know, what it was in, in that particular form? How, can, how do I want to edit and change it into a, a book manuscript? So start to think about that and also look ahead to sort of other, other research. So as I mentioned, you know, throughout the podcast, I'm just looking at the text kind of on its own terms as a work of literature, but there's so much reception history that remains yet to be written on and studied. So for me, it's going to be probably thinking about what's what my role um, in academia is going to be applying for jobs where I can be, you know, a professor teaching religion and also doing some research. But People who study religion go on to many different kinds of paths. And Harvard Divinity School is a really interesting place because they train all different kinds of people. You know, we have, there's doctoral students like myself who are focusing on research and teaching, but there are also Master of Divinity students. So people who are actually training to be religious leaders of all different kinds. So the uh, Harvard Divinity School trains Christian ministers. They train people to be rabbis, imams you know, priests in a Hindu or Buddhist temple. They have all different kinds of training and programs and resources to prepare people for careers 
in ministry broadly conceived. Um, it's not uncommon for people to graduate and go on to become hospital chaplains, work in the nonprofit sector, all these different kinds of things, go on to DC, work for the Department of State and use their sort of religious training and their knowledge of different cultures to contribute in that way. So there's all different kinds of things that people who study religion go on to be and, and do in the world. But for me personally, it'll probably involve something to do with academia, you know, teaching, writing, things like that. Awesome. Well, as we wrap up our conversation today, do you have a couple of takeaway points that you would want people to take from this conversation? Absolutely. I think often people are nervous to go out and study, you know, some of the texts of other religious traditions because they think, you know, oh, they're going to be so long. They're going to be so dense. Maybe it's in a language I don't know. But there are so many really excellent translations of the text, not only the text I work on, the Tirukuru, but of all different kinds of South Asian religious texts. So you can actually probably go to pretty much any bookstore or library today, find a copy of the Bhagavad Gita, find a copy of the Ramayana in English translation and pick it up and read it from beginning to end. And so one thing I would say is, you know, if people are interested in this topic, not even necessarily as practitioners, but just as people interested in different cultures and histories, that you can absolutely find, you know, books from these different religious traditions in translation. They'll have usually an introduction that will sort of cue you into what's going on in terms of the plot or the poetic structure of a particular text. Excellent. Yeah. And I think when people think of religious studies or theology, they might shy away because they think it's inherently just about religion. But as you've explored today, as we as you've talked about today, it is really pulling into or all these other components of literature or anthropology or history or sociology, and that it can be a much broader conversation, something to learn that's not just about God or who, whoever it is that is the subject of these texts. That's right. That's right. That's absolutely true. And I totally agree with that. You know, we have, like I said before, we have practitioners studying religion who are really studying the traditions of which they're a part as members of that faith community. But we also have people, you know, studying religion without any particular inclination or, or religious orientation, just re studying the tradition as you know, historians, anthropologists, whatever their position may be. And so it's a really sort of interesting, diverse field. And I like that we have sort of all these different perspectives working together, because I think that's what makes it a really sort of rich um, space um, for us to learn and think about all these religious traditions together. Jason, thank you again for talking to me today and sharing a bit about your research. Um, it sounds like in the future, we'll have a book to look forward to if people want to learn more about this. <laughs> I hope so. But thank you so much. I look forward to hearing about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was a really, it was a pleasure to be here and, and to talk with you about my research. Here we are again. It's the final fun fact of the episode. This week's fun fact comes from Cullen. You may be thinking, that name sounds familiar. And yes, this fact did come from Cullen, who co-hosted the last episode. Did you know that there is only one natural lake in the state of Texas? The rest are man-made. The natural lake, called Caddo Lake, was formed around 1800 when a log jam built up on the Red River. The log jam has since been removed, but the lake remained. If you'd like to share a fun fact for me to read on the episode, please email me at hookedonsciencepod at gmail.com with the subject line fun fact, and you may hear it on a future episode. Talk to you in two weeks. 